Hebrews chapter 4, reading the first two verses. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. We are continuing our series we started a couple of weeks ago that is titled Mixed with Faith. We concluded our last lesson considering uh, one of the things we considered was how we handle temptation. We also considered how that some of the promises of God that God has made, sorry, to his people require some faithfulness. There, are, there is some endurance for some promises to be fulfilled. And we tried to challenge ourselves as a body that we do not want to get stuck in what we call the hamster wheel of the continual cycle of repentance and then sowing to the flesh, going back to sin, repentance, and being like a hamster stuck in a wheel. And uh, trying to connect to some of those concepts, I do want to consider again how we benefit or how we profit by mixing our faith with the Word of God. And so we're going to be going to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 going to be unpacking some of this chapter or most of this chapter and hopefully connecting it back to what we are teaching about. I think many of us understand but for the sake of a baseline it's always important when we get into the epistles or the letters in the New Testament that we remember they are written to the church. They are not written to the general public. They weren't whole page ads taken out in the newspaper but they were written to believers. It's, it's important when you study the New Testament, we understand that our four Gospels record the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, including his death, burial, and resurrection. The book of Acts records the birth of the church and people actually being saved. The majority of the epistles are written to churches, individuals, or regions, teaching them how to continue to live for God. And then obviously we have the book of Revelation at the end, which has a lot to do with end-time prophetic events. So it's important we understand the intended audience when we read the Word of God. So when we read this chapter today, please keep that in the back of our minds. But let's, let's start in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, We then, as workers together with Him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Now, the King James Version of the Bible, in some places more than others, uses language and phrases and terms that can be a mouthful for us compared to our regular everyday English speech today. Um, I love the King James Bible. Um, I, I don't apologize for that. But what it means is that sometimes we need to break down some of those, that, that language to help us to understand it a little bit. So Paul is saying here in verse 1, he said, We are working with God. He's talking about himself and those that are ministering with him. We are working with God on your behalf. And he's saying, please don't waste the wonderful gift that God has given you by his grace. And then in verse 2 he says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This verse, Paul is actually quoting directly from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And he is reminding them that God said that there is a day of salvation. 
and that God brings us to that day of salvation at just the right time, that God's timing is always perfect. Verse 3 says, Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. Here Paul is telling us that he and those that are working with him for the Lord are giving their very best effort and they're living in a manner that is upright and doesn't give anybody the opportunity to pick fault with their ministry, to find flaws in their character. He's not suggesting that they are perfect and they never do or say the wrong thing, but it's a statement of their mindset. They want to do their very best for the kingdom of God so that there isn't something that other people can point to and say, ah, see, this is why it's not real. This is why we shouldn't trust these people. Amen. Amen. And then in verse 4, it says, But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, not a little bit, but much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, and in fastings. Paul is saying we are demonstrating that integrity by going through a whole lot of hardship. We've been, there are beatings, there's prison, there's angry mobs, there's sleepless nights, there's going without food for an extended period of time, and many other struggles. Then he goes on in verse 6 to say, By pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned or love that is genuine, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Those few verses are a really good example of what I was talking about with the King James. There's a bit of a mouthful in there. But it's the same theme. Paul is continuing to talk about how they have genuinely and sincerely labored and ministered for the kingdom of God, even through hardship with holiness, with genuine love, with God's power and protection on the right hand and on the left. He says that people, some people have honored us, some have dishonored us, some we've, we've been near death, but here we are, we're still alive. And so he's saying this is all the things that we've been going through. And then in verse 11 he says, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. You are not straightened, or we might understand that word to be limited or restricted, you are not straightened in us, but you are straightened in your own bowels. Again, bowels in the King James is obviously not talking about a physical condition, it's talking about the deep seat of our emotions. Talking about deep feelings and strong emotions. Now, in verse 13, Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Now this is an interesting little passage, and I, I think somewhat connected to what we're looking at today. So Paul, in these three verses, say, is saying to the church at Corinth, he said, we have been honest with you. And, he said, our hearts are open wide to you. He said, we love you and we care for you greatly. He's, he's saying there's been no restrictions. We're, we're not straightened. We're not held back in any way toward you, but we, we love you. We care for you. We want to do everything that we possibly can for your good. He said there's no, in verse 12, he said, there's no lack of love from us toward you whatsoever. He said, but you have withheld 
or you have really limited your love toward us. That's what the second part of verse 12 means. You are straightened in your own belt. You are restricted in having genuine compassion and love towards us. And then in verse 13, what he's saying is now in a manner that fairly represents our love for you, he said, I urge you to open your hearts towards us. In the way that we have cared for you, we want you to care for us. Now, when you don't understand the context well, it, it sounds a bit like Paul is saying, we've done the right thing, but you've really dropped the ball. You guys have let the side down. You're not doing your part. It's almost, it's almost as if Paul, he sounds like he's feeling sorry for himself. We love you, but you don't love us. I liked your post, but you didn't like mine. You know, we, we've done everything we can to care for you and to be compassionate and to pour out everything that we have for your benefit, but you, you don't even care about us at all. But that's not what it's about. I, I think when you read the Word of God and you read the Apostle Paul's writings, he's not really a pity party kind of guy. He's not the sort of guy that would feel sorry for himself. But whenever you read, and this, this applies in, in the letters to Corinth, it also applies in his other epistles. Whenever you read in the epistles that Paul writes to the churches that he is drawing attention to himself or that he feels like he must defend his ministry or justify his calling or defend his authority in the kingdom of God, Paul is always focused on the well-being of those that he is ministering unto. That is his primary goal because he knows that God has called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He knows that God wants him to make a difference for the kingdom of God in these churches and among these people. And in fact, he has been involved in the birth or the beginning of many of those churches. Amen? He's been involved in that. And so he understands, the Apostle Paul understands that there is a direct connection. And this is an important principle. There is a direct connection between their respect for him and his calling and them being willing to listen to his instruction and take him seriously. If they don't pay any attention to him, then it's very hard for him to minister to them. And Paul knew that people would not take strong instructions or rebuke from somebody they did not respect. And so whenever you read about Paul writing about his office, he uses that word, he talks about his ministry, he talks about his calling and what God has done in him and through him. It's not Paul uh, being boastful. It's not Paul saying, look at me, I'm amazing. Because you read also where he says things like, I'm the chief of all sinners. He said, in fact, I was so wicked that God has used me for an example of what his grace can accomplish. So he's not elevating himself, but he is wanting them to take him and his ministry seriously so that he can care for their souls. Look, if you go to the doctor and you're not well and the doctor says, this is what's wrong, but you don't have any confidence in the doctor's qualifications and you completely ignore the doctor's advice or the doctor's diagnosis and you go out and use Google MD and diagnose your own problem and treat your own conditions, that lack of respect for the professional qualifications of the doctor hurts you. The doctor's still going to bill you for the visit. The doctor's health is not affected. But your attitude toward the doctor impacts the doctor's ability to minister to your well-being. 
And that's where the Apostle Paul is coming from. That's why in, in, in Hebrews chapter 13 and 17, it says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now, obviously, this is a verse that is subject to abuse. Let's call it how it is. There are people that abuse this verse and try to dictate to people's lives. You need to have great confidence that God will take care of them. God doesn't forget. God doesn't go, oh, yeah, that's right, there's that person who was a tyrant. Now, he remembers. He remembers. God will deal with them. But the principle of that verse is that if you respect and honor the people that God has placed to minister to you, you are more likely to listen to what they have to say, which means then they are able to give a good report to God of how it has been profitable for them. It's not about them. It's really about us, the, 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 us being benefited. So one of the things, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that Paul was dealing with in Corinth, but one of the things that we see Paul dealing with in the church in Corinth is it's in the first epistle, it's also in the second epistle, is that there's division among people's preferences for preachers and that generally as a whole, the church in Corinth is not very impressed with Paul. They don't think particularly highly of Paul. I'll show you why. This is what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is where Paul writes to them for the very first time, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. He wasn't wanting them to sing in harmony. He was wanting them to stop squabbling. And that there be no divisions among you, that you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He said, for it has been declared unto me of you. Somebody wrote to him, or somebody communicated to him somehow, my brethren, by them that are of the house of Chloe. So he, he said, this is the person that's dobbed you in. That might have been interesting afterwards that there are contentions among you. He said, I've heard that there's problems, there's contention, there's strife, there's division, there's this conflict going on. And he said, and now this I say, that every one of you, what I'm hearing is that some of you are saying, well, I follow Paul. Some of you are saying, I'm of Apollos. Some of you are saying, I'm of Cephas, or I'm from the Apostle Peter, and some are of Christ. They're, they're the super spiritual ones. They don't have a minister, it's just them and Jesus. They've got it covered all by themselves. We've all known those people. Amen. But Paul is saying, it's not about who you prefer. It's not about one person or another person. It's about Jesus. That's what it's all about. But then even without comparing Paul to the other preachers, the Corinthians were critical of him because in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, this is him writing what he's heard them say. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful. So he's a good writer. But his bodily presence is weak. And his speech, contemptible. Paul wrote really well. But apparently, he wasn't very impressive behind the pulpit. His bodily presence. It seemed that maybe Paul had habits or mannerisms they didn't like. And that he didn't speak very well. Wasn't eloquent. Wasn't, didn't, maybe it was because he was too blunt and direct. I don't know. But they, they didn't think very highly of Paul. When somebody said, who's your favorite preacher? Paul didn't get a recognition very often. He was a good letter writer. They liked what he had to write, but in the pulpit, yeah, you know. You know and, and the thing is, preachers have mannerisms. You know, I, when I think back on the men that I've had for pastors, I can remember some of their mannerisms, and I know I have some because the young people laugh about them sometimes. And that's okay. We all have those quirks. 
I remember years ago, Brother Glass was preaching a general conference and in a way that only Brother Glass could, he stood up in the pulpit and he told the whole general conference, my wife said to me, don't you dare blow your nose in the pulpit. And he said, but for the last two days I've had a cold. And so he took his hanky out and he blew his nose in the pulpit at general conference and I'm sure Sister Jan spoke to him afterwards. But we all have mannerisms. Those of us that sat under Brother Jacobson's ministry we may remember how he used to blow his nose in the pulpit as well. And uh, they're the, you know, But later on, they're the things we remember fondly is the things that made them who they are. But with Paul, yeah, his bodily presence, he's maybe not very good looking. I imagine if you'd been beaten and stoned and shipwrecked, you probably didn't look too great. And his speech just wasn't very good. So Paul had to overcome these opinions to be able to minister to them effectively, for them to pay attention to what he was trying to say. So you could almost summarize Paul's struggle with Corinth like this. They lacked respect for Paul. They had division over personalities and influence. And they had conflict going on among themselves that they couldn't even sort out. In fact, they were taking each other to court. That's what the Bible says. You know, I have a problem with Brother Grant. I don't like the way he parks his car. I keep talking to him about it every Sunday, but he just won't listen. I'm going to sue him. I don't think you can sue somebody for that. But, but they, they, that such was the attitude within that congregation. They couldn't even sort their problems out in the church. They were, they were taking legal action against one another. And Paul rebuked them for that. You see, with Corinth, their behavior was very heavily influenced by the world in which they lived. And they were responding to situations the way their society would and not the way that the people of God should. They were following personalities. They were squabbling. They were suing each other. You could almost say there were so many voices, so much variety of influence, and so much confusion in the church in Corinth. So with, with keeping that in mind, we go back to Second Corinthians chapter 6. And read on, remember it's the same passage, after Paul has spent the first 13 verses of the chapter basically saying, we're giving it everything we can to minister to you, but you guys are making it really hard for us. That's kind of what he was saying. Then in verse 14 he says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial? And what part has he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So Paul's letter flows from writing about how the church hasn't really shown him and his fellow laborers the love and respect they deserve into teaching about separation from the world doesn't sort of seem connected but they are he starts out with saying don't be unequally yoked or don't be unequally bound together with people who don't believe in jesus now we often use this verse to teach our young people that when you think you're getting married you shouldn't marry somebody that doesn't share your faith and that's true that's true if you're a young person and you want to serve god you're going to make your life tough if you marry somebody that doesn't also want to serve god And if you believe the illusion that, well, they'll change later, the strike rate for that is not very high. I would not recommend that. And in my own life, 
people I grew up with, young people that I've known personally that have chosen to make that decision to marry somebody that doesn't walk the same faith they do, it never ends well. It's not a good idea. Amen. But the idea of being yoked or being bound together with somebody who's broader than just who you marry. It's talking about being in a relationship, an effective relationship where people can steer you or direct you one way or the other. It's not just about marriage. And in the context of the situation at Corinth that Paul is writing about, it includes the idea of the voices that we listen to. Who is influencing us? The division, the opinions, the squabbles. Because then Paul compares some things. When he talks about this idea of, of separation, he, say, he compares righteousness and unrighteousness, light and darkness. And these things should be on that next slide. Christ and Belial, or Christ and Satan. Believers and infidels are unbelievers. You know, I wouldn't recommend telling your unsaved friends that they're infidels, but that word simply means they're unbelievers. He compares the temple of God with idols, and he's saying these things are all opposites. These are things that are incompatible with one another. And then Paul uses words or terms that refer to the connections that should not be between these things. He talks about fellowship, which means... We can understand that as participating together. Communion speaks of intimacy. Concord speaks of harmony. When he says they're not a part of, they're not pieces of a bigger picture. The agreement speaks of approval and support. He's saying these things do not go together. He's saying these words should never be used to describe righteousness and unrighteousness, light and darkness and so on. That's why Paul went on to say after he said these things don't belong together, he went on to say in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 6, Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And the first verse of chapter 7, continuing that thought, says, Having therefore these promises. What are the promises? That God wants us to be his kids. And that we are the temples of his spirit. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, these are the people said, we're the ones, we're loving you. He said, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So if we are going to be in a relationship with God that God recognizes, we must actively remove the influence of those things that are incompatible with that relationship. He said, let us cleanse ourselves. He didn't say, get someone else to do it. He said, we need to take care of that stuff. Because too many voices only produces confusion and compromise. Now, we've taken a little time to walk through this chapter because it's important. You see, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Here he's speaking about the Old Testament. He's speaking about Exodus and Moses. And he says, these things happened unto them... For examples or examples, and they are written for our admonition or our correction, our direction, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So Paul was saying to the Corinthians, that's why we've got these things from the Old Testament. But we could say the exact same things about what he is writing. These things are written to the church at Corinth for an example for us that they might correct and instruct us upon whom the ends of the world have come. Amen. Same reasoning applies. 
So if the church at Corinth was suffering confusion from the conflicting voices and influences in their day and in their society, why would we not need to take care of the same things today? Why would those same principles not apply to us? So to get down a little bit to what is practical for us, what is practical for us, the number one voice of influence in our society across the board is media. It's media in all its forms. There has never, ever been a society that is as saturated with media as ours is right now. Let me talk about news media first. It's not that long ago, and I may sound like an old man, but it's not that long ago where you had to wait for the newspaper to come out or telegrams to arrive or radio broadcasts to be at a set time every day or you waited, the news used to be at a set time every day. You know, but now reporting is constant. It is instant. It is relentless. It is constantly being updated. It is sound bites. It is brief clips. It is live crosses to the scene of what's going on constantly. But at the same time, it is also very often unverified, sensational, and agenda-driven. And that makes it dangerous. I give us a very current example. The conflict that is happening in Israel at the moment is a very uh, traumatic situation for everybody that's involved. It's very sobering. But it is so hard to get accurate, unbiased reporting. If you're interested in finding out what's actually happening, I mean, we have people in this congregation who have family in Israel. And trying to find out from the news media... Exactly what is happening is incredibly hard because almost every report is biased or presented with one particular agenda trying to make the case for one side or the other or this or that or everything else. And so all of this media which is unverified floods our society and we have university campuses across the Western world where young people who, while they may be highly highly educated, are very ignorant of the realities of the world and life, are protesting and making all kinds of crazy statements in support of this side or that side, really having no actual reality of what is happening on the ground. And that's the news media. I mean, I, I, I want to be very careful how I say this and not come across as being unkind, but I saw a group of homosexual university students protesting that as homosexuals they supported Palestine. Now the absurdity of that, knowing that their choices, their lifestyle, their behaviour has absolutely zero tolerance in that part of the world. And yet they're protesting in the West in support. It's difficult to comprehend But part of that is because of the unrestrained flood of media which we are constantly assaulted with. The motivation nowadays is more often about sharing an opinion rather than reporting facts. Anybody with a smartphone and a ring light is an expert or a consultant. That's the reality. No qualifications necessary. Just a smartphone and a bit of lighting and and say things like you know what you're talking about. And sadly, people get caught up 
in the tidal wave of this flood of opinions that comes to us from the media. And everybody has an opinion. Let me, when you talk to people about current events, when you talk to people about world events, be balanced. Try to use wisdom because you need to be honest enough to recognize you may not know a whole lot about what's going on. And you've got to be wise because what happens is fear grips hearts. Anxiety becomes elevated and everything is negative and doom and gloom and the world's just going down the drain at 100 miles an hour. And yes, the end of the world is coming. But the last time I checked, Jesus was still on his throne. The last time I checked, God still has us in his hand. He still sees when a sparrow falls. That's what the Bible says. And you are still worth more than many sparrows. That's what the scripture says. Now, if you want to spend time considering the prophetic implications of current world events and how all of these things fit into end time prophecy, you are welcome to. Please go right ahead. If you find that I'm drifting away when you try to talk to me about those things, it's just a coincidence, I promise you. There's nothing wrong with looking at prophecy and understanding all those things, but you've got to ask yourself, there are things that are more important than trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. Things that are more important than trying to work out which nation is represented by which image or which creature in John's vision. Today, the bigger question is, is my light driving out darkness? That's the bigger question. Am I separated from unrighteousness? How can I glorify Jesus today? They're the questions we need to answer. Am I ready for his return regardless of how all that stuff unfolds? Please, I'm not saying don't read the news, don't watch news reports. I think there's, there's a certain amount of importance to having awareness of what is going on in our world. But don't become consumed by those things. Don't let those things have a voice in your life that promotes confusion with the promises of God. We've got to be careful. I mean, and that's just the news media. You know, I may be naive, but I believe there was a time when people's goal when they reported was facts, at least some reporters. Now I'm not sure I trust any of them. And that's sad, but... You know, I'll give you, give you a small example of what bad media can do. Many of you have no doubt heard that in this current conflict there was a hospital that was bombed. Terrible situation. Horrible. The, difficult for us to even comprehend what's that like, what that's like. And the news media instantly blamed Israel. And as a response to that, people in other countries, I think there was a, a synagogue that was firebombed somewhere in Europe and, and a variety of other things, Jews were mistreated because of what happened. The facts came out that it actually wasn't the Jews. It was actually the terrorists. But too late by then, the damage is done to the other people across the world. This is the danger and the hysteria that can be fed through the news media. Amen. Again, I'm not saying don't read. I, I keep a, a broad interest in a variety. Of, I'm certainly not a, 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 an expert, but I think it's important to be aware of what's going on in the world, but always be careful what you read. Don't always assume that because it's on a website that looks like it's official, it's fact. Amen. All right. Quarter to 12. Where'd the day go? Let's talk about entertainment. We're talking about voices and influences in media. There have been forms of entertainment for as long as mankind has been around, really. Whether you go back through the centuries to stories and oral traditions that were shared around fires, songs that were sung, eventually materials became printed, people performed dramas, 
various forms of recreational entertainment has existed for a very long time. But we are, without a doubt, the most entertained generation ever. You know, it has been somewhere around 2,000 years since the birth of the church, since the book of Acts, around about 2,000 years, give or take a few years here or there, depending on what your view is of the calendar. But in the last approximately 100 years, give or take again, we have seen these developments. Radio came into people's homes. Now, some of you young people don't even know what the radio is. But radio came into people's homes and people had a box on the mantelpiece that people talked out of. The wireless, as they used to call it back in the day. Television came into people's homes. Movie theatres came about. Home videos, DVDs, the internet, and now we're in the age of wireless smart devices. All of that's in a roundabout, give or take, the last 100 years of the church, which is only 5% of the church's history. And some of us think, ah, oh, it's been around forever. On the scope of how long the church has been around, 5% is not a whole lot. Okay? It's gone from people watching the moon landing in shop windows on a black and white TV to people binging Netflix on their phones at the bus stop in the morning. That's where it's come from. Entertainment, and I'm not an expert, but entertainment works on two basic principles. The first one is supply and demand. People want to watch certain things, so that's the kind of stuff that's produced. It's about making money. So if people don't want it, they don't make it. People say, oh, what's the terrible things that are on TV? It's on there because people want to watch it. That's the reality. And since man's natural unsaved state is sinful, the things that appeal to people are often in line with those sinful desires. So entertainment, that's the momentum of entertainment. Now, if the devil is trying to destroy mankind and influence mankind away from God as much as he possibly can, is there a better tool on the market than entertainment? Is there a better tool he has that he can take advantage of than entertainment? Probably not. And tragically, entertainment plays a massive role, one of the primary roles in society, of the normalization of sinful behaviors and attitudes. When things lose their shock, when things are no longer ashamed to talk about or ashamed to be involved in, Entertainment is involved in that. Step by step, episode by episode, season by season, people stop being shocked. They begin to become comfortable with, then they accept as normal, and then they celebrate. Now, if you're interested, you can take the time and investigate online. But over time, in the short history of the kind of entertainment we're used to, there have been standards and ratings. Okay, movies had different ratings, TV shows had different ratings. And they have changed quite dramatically. There have been things that were considered acceptable and things that weren't. And you can actually go back and you can Google the firsts, the first time something happened on a screen, whether it was a TV or a movie. You can go back and you can Google the first time there was a kiss on a screen. It's a little over 100 years ago, actually, in a very old black and white movie. And this couple kissed for about two seconds and it was an international sensation. It sent ripples across the whole world because it was the first time. You can Google when there was partial nudity for the first time. You can Google when there was an implied sex scene for the first time. You can Google when drug use was first shown in entertainment. But those things are old. They become normal because now we've added things like full nudity, graphic sex scenes, homosexual interaction. 
is becoming normalized in entertainment. Now we have transgender characters being deliberately included to normalize that behavior as well. M let me be clear, don't hate any of those people. The behavior is ungodly. The behavior is wicked, it is sinful. And what happens is we are shocked when those things happen. But there's something about human nature that we adjust. We get used to it, it doesn't bother us anymore. We accept it as normal and we celebrate those things. Now, if the devil, and we, you know, we believe he's real, if the devil is utilizing those tools to get our society to become numb to sin, to not be shocked by things anymore, to, to accept behaviors that they would have never accepted not even that long ago, we would be very foolish to not recognize that he would try to do the same thing with the church. That he would try to get us to, piece by piece, accept behaviors as okay. Accept entertainment as okay. Accept watching things, listening to things, participating in things as being okay. But the question that Paul asked us was, what communion has light with darkness? You see, when we allow the appeal of entertainment to compromise our separation from the world, we begin to dim the light. We soften it so it's not so confronting. We add unrighteousness to our righteousness. We ask the devil to sit at the same table as Jesus and we bring idols into the temple of the living God. Now, I know this may be a little direct and blunt, but we need to be aware. We need to be aware. So let's make it a little bit more practical. This is a list, and I'm happy to share this with anybody that wants it. If you want it, please email me. Don't see me at the end of the service because I've only got it electronically. This is a list that I didn't produce this list, uh, but I, I borrowed it from another minister. And this is called Let Some Questions to Help Christians Make Entertainment Choices. Now, that statement already lets us know that not all entertainment is wrong. We're not, we're not suggesting that, you know, you should go home and throw your router in the bin, get rid of your Wi-Fi, go back to a rotary phone. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's not what we're suggesting. We're suggesting that we need to have an awareness of the agenda and not just let it seep into our homes. Amen. Let me pause here. This isn't in my notes, but I say it from time to time, and I think it's important. Parents. Parents. If you have children who have access to internet-capable smart devices and you are not monitoring those, and there's a lot of different ways you can do that. There are restrictions. There's accountability software. There's a whole lot of ways that you can do that. Generally speaking, without being rude to your parents, your kids are going to be smarter than you with technology anyway. But if you are not involved in supervision and monitoring those things, you are doing your children an incredible disservice because they have access to everything. Everything. There is nothing that cannot be accessed on the internet. Nothing. And if your 10, 12, 14-year-old has a smartphone that has internet access and you have no idea what they're involved in, that's incredibly dangerous because they are curious the young people, they are curious. Remember what it was like when you were young. You were curious as well. There's always something about human nature that is curious about the things they think they're not supposed to be involved in. 
That's just human nature. If you are going to trust your kids with those devices, and I'll say this, postpone letting your kids have a phone as long as possible. There are, there are different reasons and different situations. I get that. But your kids are not going to die without a mobile phone at 10 years of age. They'll tell you they're going to die, but they'll probably survive. But please be aware that diet is just as important as what you put in their mouths. You're feeding their minds, their hearts, their souls. And I, I see young people with smart devices and parents who are clueless. If you can't monitor it, get rid of it. All right, let's leave that there. All the young people don't like the pastor anymore. That's okay. Some questions that can help Christians make entertainment choices. Number one, can I maintain my Christian witness and engage in this activity? Will people question my Christianity if they see me participate in this? Can I invoke the blessings of God praying in the name of Jesus for my involvement in this activity? Lord, please bless me as I surf the internet. Please bless me as I watch this questionable series that my friend told me was really good. Can you ask God to bless that behavior? That's the question. Will this activity leave me feeling as if I have compromised my values? Number four, would I be comfortable inviting my spiritual mentor to engage in this activity with me? You know, when I teach young people on this, and I was talking to a group of young people yesterday after the men's breakfast doing a a teaching session at the Nazareth Church, when I talk to young people, I say this to them, when you're making those decisions, would you do it if your pastor was sitting next to you? And that normally gets really awkward and squirmy. And then I say to them, but if your pastor's not there and you have the Holy Ghost, Jesus is sitting there with you. Would you do it with him sitting there? You know, it's, it's kind of weird that we worry more about the pastor seeing us than the fact that we've taken our Holy Ghost to that activity. That's what really matters. But that's a good question to ask. Would you be comfortable with pastor, youth leader, somebody that you look up to in the kingdom of God participating in that activity with you? Let's, let's be honest. Have, who's ever seen something really funny and gone to show somebody and then forgot that it had some bad language in it? And they go, oh, I'm really sorry about that. I forgot that was there. <laughs> because we, 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 we overlook things sometimes. Does this activity promote godly attitudes and behaviors? Do I leave this activity more or less equipped for my spiritual walk with God? Does this activity appeal to my carnal nature? For example, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Does this activity portray, promote, or even just condone behaviors, attitudes, or philosophies which are condemned in the Bible? We have to remember that there's something wrong with our minds, and that's all of us, that's not me pointing you, that's all of us, when we can be entertained by watching things that Jesus died to pay for. The sin that he gave his life for, and we watch it for fun, We've got to be careful with that. Amen. Do I feel guilty like I am violating my conscience or the need to repent after I've engaged in this activity? Am I committed to ceasing my involvement in any activity which turns out to be in violation of biblical principles, including but not limited to turning off a device or walking out of a venue? Now, I, there are some young people here and, and young people... Well, 
even not just young people, but friends I have in other places that have accountability software on their electronic devices because they want somebody to help them to make the right decisions. And I, I am an accountability partner for a number of people. I get a report every week. Let me know how they've been on the internet. And I have that for myself as well. My wife gets an email. And if there's things we need to talk about, we talk about those things. Sometimes it picks up things that are funny. And you think, but it's better to have it in place. And you know something? I hear people say, well, you know, we should just do the right thing because we want to please God. Yes, that's true. But there's a reason he put us in a body. And if knowing that there's somebody walking with us, helping to keep us accountable, stops us from participating in something, I call that victory. I call that a win. Amen. Last question. How does my commitment of time and resources to this activity compare to my commitment to spiritual disciplines and participation in the life of the church? See, all of this comes back to what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. Too many voices, too many influences. You become confused, you become numb to sin, you lose your priorities, you dim the light. Amen. Now, a few years ago, at General Conference, Brother Downs was teaching on some of these things, and he got Matthew up in front of the whole conference and he gave Matthew a teaspoon. You remember that? And he said, take this teaspoon and go and dip it in the toilet and come back. And Brother Downs had a glass of water, and he put that teaspoon into the glass of water. And he said, now, who'd like a drink? Now, the amount of water on that spoon was very minimal. But nobody said, oh, yes, please, I'm thirsty. Instantly you go, eh, that's a bit questionable. You know, and I'm not suggesting that we can always live in this world like a pure bottle of water, but we have to have that mindset, well, how is this influencing me? Because we, we become numb. I'll tell you something else about entertainment. Even if your entertainment is, by your assessment, not a problem in terms of its content, when you saturate your mind and heart with entertainment, you will find that church becomes boring because you lose the ability to hear the voice of God and feel the move of His Spirit. It's like, yeah, I didn't get much out of church today. Well, that's because you didn't put much into church today. Instead of praying, you were binging. Entertainment can make us numb. And again, I'm not saying that all forms of entertainment are bad. But what I am saying is that for many believers, it is far too strong a voice in their heads. Amen. It is not compatible with hearing the voice of God or with the move of the Spirit. We need to turn up the light, not dim them. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. I know this has been an exciting run around the church kind of message, but it's important. The influences that we allow into our mind, the voices, you know, Mental health is a very serious problem in our society and it is not a simple problem, it is a complex issue and anybody that tells you that you just pray and it'll be fixed is unfortunately a little bit ignorant, maybe well-intentioned, but ignorant. But a lot of mental health has to do with clarity of what we're listening to and what we're thinking. And what we feed in has a big part of that. Again, I'm not saying if you cancel Netflix that your mental health problems will disappear. That's not my point. What I'm saying is the clarity of our thoughts are directly connected to the health of our thinking. And if things that we are adding are contributing to confusion rather than clarity, an existing problem is only going to get worse, not better. Amen. Let's lift our hands. Let's just worship the Lord as we pray.
Father, we thank you today.